A lot of this is natural. None of it is surprising. I think that it leaves the industry in an incredibly conservative place without a lot of risk tolerance, without a lot of vision beyond selling ads into the next quarter or next two quarters. And that that too is cyclical and it will circle back again, undoubtedly. This is Podcast Perspectives, a show about the latest news in the podcast industry and the people behind it. I'm your host, Jeff Umbro, founder and CEO of The Podglomerate. Today, I'm speaking with Eric Newsom, co-founder of the production company Magnificent Noise and writer of the newsletter Audio Insurgent. Eric has more experience than most in the audio industry, starting in public radio in the late 90s, helping to launch NPR's podcast division in the early 2000s before moving to Audible 11 years later to help launch their commercial division, and then in 2018, launching Magnificent Noise, a boutique podcast production company that works with folks from CNN, ESPN, The Met, Stanford, and many, many more very high-profile prestigious clients. Today on the podcast, we will chat about his newsletter covering the podcast industry, how he's thinking about the state of that industry, and how his agency approaches production. And let's get to it. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Eric. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks. You have done a million different things. So I figured for this interview, we'll break it into kind of three sections. And the first section will be like your industry writing. Mm -hmm. Why do you write about the podcast industry as somebody who is working in that industry? There's two reasons. Uh, one is very practical that that I get work as a, as a consultant and as a producer as a result of the things that I say and do in that newsletter. I think it attracts people who are looking for someone to help them with problems. That on its own is worth doing. I also think that writing for me and writing about audio is not new, even though the audio insurgents about the newsletter I write is about two, almost two and a half years old. I've been writing about media for longer than 20 years. So that I continue to write and continue to write even through the evolution of podcasting. Even when I was at NPR, I didn't publish as much when I was at NPR because NPR is very sensitive to what I would say, but I still did publish some. And then Audible also was a little sensitive about me writing externally, though I did continue to do some. And then I had a couple of people approach me about writing a book about podcasting. And I had said no. And then just one day I changed my mind and like what, what made the difference, I have no idea. But I ended up saying I would write a book contract and then realized I wouldn't be able to do that while working at Audible. And that was one of the things. When we started Magnificent Noise and we left Audible, the plan was Jesse was pregnant with her third child. And I had this book I had said I would write and I had to finish. I'm like, okay, you go off and create a life. I'm going to go write this book. And then we'll meet up in a couple months and we'll start Magnificent Noise. And that's that's basically what we did. One of the things that I'm always like very curious about, including with making this show, is we work in an industry that is not that large. I'm constantly worried about stepping on toes and upsetting the wrong people because they're the same people that hire us for jobs in the future or historically. How do you navigate that? And, and is it something you even think about? I have a reputation for speaking plainly and clearly about things, even when I'm uncomfortable. I remember I had someone drop me as a client or not take me because they felt I was too opinionated or opinionated the wrong way. Uh, my opinions have come caught up with me before. Um, I remember when I was at NPR once, I had written a piece and spoken at a conference advocating for NPR putting its main magazine programs on Sirius Satellite Radio. And uh, it was a very unpopular opinion in the public radio system at the time. 
And shortly after I got hired in PR, a stage manager actually brought it up in a board meeting of how can we trust you when he's working here now? And he was an advocate for this idea, which was a cheap shot, but still. You know, there are a handful of articles I'll see over the years where I'm just kind of thinking like, oh, wow, that's a strong opinion to put out in writing to the universe. I I don't really feel that way with your writing. Even though I have a reputation for speaking plainly, I am very careful and thoughtful about what I say. And I do give thought to, is this something I want to have out in the world and can never take back? And see, I think generally I'm not afraid to make mistakes. And I'm not afraid to take risk that isn't guaranteed to work out. And so I think that this is perhaps an extension of that. I put a lot of thought into the decisions I make and the things I advocate for and the things that I advise to clients I work with. And I give it a lot of thought. And I think I'm, I'm fairly, I spend a lot of time educating myself so that my opinions are informed. But I am happy to be wrong. I am happy to be very publicly wrong. And also you'll find I, I will correct myself and say, you know, I said this and now I don't believe that anymore. People come back to me and say, oh, five years ago, you wrote this thing and said X. I'm like, yeah, that was five years ago. Yeah. The world has changed. I'm allowed to change my opinion, right? And and, and I want to be very clear because as I'm listening to this, I, I do think it sounds like I'm like accusing you or something, but I promise I'm not. I think that you do an amazing job and I think there's a lot of writing in every industry where people are not as thoughtful and sometimes that's just inexperience and sometimes it's intentional, but... I think about that a lot with podcast media specifically because, you know, I'm, I'm probably wrong here, but like I would guess that there's like 10 to 20,000 people in the world that are working in this industry right now. Like that's very small. So what results have you seen from your writing, both direct and indirect? Like what kind of success have you seen there? Well, it's interesting. I, you know, I think the main motivation I have for writing is because it helps me figure out what I think. My mother used to make me do this when I was a child. She would tell me to write my feelings, like write how I felt, like as a way of dealing with my feelings when I was a kid, like just to help me understand why I'm angry, like why am I mad or why am I feeling sad or why, why, why am I really excited? And I think I've kept that now of like when I'm looking at moves the companies make or I look at changes in the industry, I'm like, what do I think about this and the way I process it by writing it down? But I think when I think of the effect, it's really weird because sometimes I'll put something out in the world and it'll feel like absolutely cathartic to have this out. Sometimes I just release a multi-part one about public radio in the United States. That was actually an accumulation of almost a year's worth of thinking. I'd been writing down, taking notes on. And to put it out in the world, I like couldn't sleep the night before. I'm so nervous about like how people would react to it. And I put it out in the world and I'm like, okay, it's they always come out at 6 a.m. I get up that morning. I'm like, what changed? It's like nothing changed. (laughs) (laughs) But then since then, a couple of people have reached out, a couple of major market stations who are convening groups of people together to talk about what I wrote. And it was actually a framework. I don't really expect people to do literally what I say. What I want them to do is to see the problem and come up with a solution on their own and implement it. And that's really gratifying to see that when someone comes up with an answer that I hadn't even thought of. As someone who also works with many you know, public radio stations, like I totally get it. That series of articles really did pinpoint kind of an identity situation with a lot of public media stations that we've worked with, where everyone can very clearly recognize the problem, but the solutions are still playing under the old rule book. And it's very clear which stations are kind of throwing that rule book out the window and like really succeeding because of it. Because, you know, as you point out, and as, as most people realize, like a lot of these public radio journalists are just the best at what they do. 
They've been doing it for a long time. They're really, really talented and creative. And if you let them do the thing that they're good at, it doesn't really matter what format or rules you're using to do it within reason. You know, people want to listen to those shows and that content and, and those stories. This is actually a great transition to get into the second bucket, which is going to be the podcast industry. So I am curious what you think of the podcast industry right now. And the follow-up is going to be what you think of the broadcast industry. Let's switch that around and let's talk about broadcast first, because I think there's lessons in there for what's happening for podcasting right now. The Telecommunications Act of 1996 did a lot of things that kind of completely radicalized, revolutionized the broadcast industry, mostly surrounded by removing some of the arcane and archaic ownership restrictions. And at the time, there were people ringing alarm bells saying, this is going to destroy this industry because it's going to change it at a DNA level. And ownership was the catalyst, but I don't know if that was really the problem. I think broadcast switched from being in the broadcasting community voice business of connecting with listeners and creating a community. And it got out of that business and got into the advertising business. Now, there's nothing wrong with the advertising business, but it's like, are we creating something that a lot of people listen to and love and get excited about and then finding smart ways to monetize that? Or are we just trying to trick people into sticking around long enough for us to put, put, give them an ad and I think that that is definitely what happened in broadcast radio and I think to some extent broadcast television of let's just keep people around long enough to show them a, you know, a 12 minute run of advertising, knowing that at the end of that, we're going to burn all those people away, but then we're going to start again because we're promising we're going to have some outrageous thing or something that really doesn't really connect with people. That's why I thought about the broadcast industries. It made a bunch of decisions and inflicted a lot of pain on itself. And they figured by the time the pain was felt, they wouldn't be around anymore. And it ended up being true. I read the obituary of one of the founders of Clear Channel a couple of years ago. And there was a direct quote in there saying that iHeart is a vehicle for, uh, or the, the shows that they were producing. And I don't actually remember if they referred to iHeart or Clear Channel, but anyway, the shows that they were producing were a vehicle for advertising, directly confirming what you're suggesting in that answer. And so how do you feel that that will or is impacting the commercial podcast space. Yeah. So the podcast industry has always been driven by people who are really passionate about talking about something to a group of people who, who appreciate it and see its value. I don't care if you're talking about a high school football team or you're telling a story, a, a mysterious story as a narrative, or you're talking about history or you're advocating for a marginalized community and trying to, or just trying to create a safe gathering space for people who care about something, right? It was all very similar to you, uh, all driven by passion, all driven by the importance of being able to get something out and know that someone out there is, is receiving it and that someone can be a handful of people or it can be millions of people, but that basic equation doesn't change. And there are challenges to figure out how to monetize it. There are challenges to figure out how to find the people who are going to care about it. But that's really what drives it. And I think that the economic instability that the industry has seen has been a combination of just kind of just a natural correction of 
instead of this un unbridled enthusiasm, infusion of money with no clear idea how it's ever going to be recouped. There's that. The general advertising woes that have plagued any media company that uses advertising. I think another big contributor in this problem we faced has been, you know, for many years, a, a very small number of people, including myself, were sounding the alarm bells about the overdependence on advertising as a revenue source. And there are other forms of revenue that there's only a handful of them, but there's like four different sources of revenue. And depending on advertising alone, is great when the money is just flying in the door. You can't, you don't have enough inventory to, to fill all the orders you're getting for advertising. Then when that cycle goes down, you're going to really be grateful that you have these other forms of revenue and nobody did. And now everybody's hurting as a result of it. The people who aren't hurting are the people who didn't think about some of those issues. A lot of this is natural. None of it is surprising. I think that it leaves the industry in an incredibly conservative place without a lot of risk tolerance without a lot of vision beyond selling ads into the next quarter or next two quarters. And that that too is cyclical and it will circle back again, undoubtedly. I hope as quickly as possible, but there will be somebody who does something really adventurous and fun and finds a way to pay for it and does really well with it. And that will inspire other people to do the same thing. Here we go again for another loop to loop. It's so funny. I, I talk about this all the time, how I had a meeting with, with another public radio station the other day. And they were very concerned about just the last year in advertising and, uh, you know, what their revenues were looking like. And I made a comment very similar to what you just did, where it's all cyclical. Like two years from now, we're going to be back to where we were two years ago, where, you know, the money was flowing. And then we're going to have another crash at some point after that. Well, I guess m my question for you is like, you've been watching this for 20 plus years. Has it been happening? You know, I know scale is different, but like, has this been kind of the case since day one? Or is this more something that we're seeing in the last, like, you know, since, since serial, since 2014. Oh, well, I think that the current meteoric rise, a very quick correction, is much more extreme than anything we've ever seen. And there'll be a couple of years from now, we'll look back at this time and think this was quaint compared to what we're, <laughs> we're doing at that point. I hope not, but... Uh, no, well, it's, it's probably likely to happen as the medium grows, the stakes grow. I get very angry when I see these companies laying off dozens or in some cases hundreds of people because of their own shitty decision making. They brought these people on, didn't give them the right set of instructions or give, give them what they needed to succeed. And who loses their job? The executives who thought it all? No, 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 they're fine. In fact, sometimes they walk away great. But the people they hired who trusted them, who believed in them, they're the ones who got hurt. And I think that really makes me angry. But there are a number of the projects, let's not confuse that with the, the many of the projects they're working on were never going to be sustainable. They had been poorly engineered. They've been poorly managed. And in those circumstances, that situation was inevitable. It just all happened at once. But I think that the economic correction forced a lot of podcast companies to make decisions that they knew they needed to make, but they just weren't pushed to do it. But a lot of these cancellations had to happen. On several episodes of this show, we've kind of talked about that. Like I, I spoke with Brian Barletta on a recent episode about this new iOS 17 change. And it's great that we're going to get more robust data that's a lot more accurate. But at the same time, like this is going to directly correspond to revenue for a lot of these older, bigger companies, which is going to directly correspond with future layoffs. So it, it's one of those things where it's like, sometimes it is management and sometimes it is like poor decision-making and sometimes it's just a maturing industry.
So for the third topic, I want to spend some time talking about Magnificent Noise and kind of where you guys fit into this industry. Because I think that you are a, a lean, diligent, and thoughtful company in terms of what you do and how you do it. So just to start, can you walk us through like a little bit of the structure of what you do and how you do it? Yeah. So Magnificent Noise was started by Jesse Baker and myself in 2018. One of the first things we thought was important, which we've rethought and questioned this a number of times, has been we wanted to be stay small, like not grow too fast. Because we felt that when people were hiring us, they were hiring us, like the two of us. And that we needed to make sure that we had our hands on everything that the company did. Like not, not necessarily on a day-to-day basis, but that we had influenced and affected how this sounds and, and how good it can be. And that's why people hired us is because they just didn't want someone to be a factory. They wanted someone to care about this product. And we, uh, we do a mixture of, depends on the month, um, but I, I probably spend 30% of my time doing consulting and 70% of my time working on running shows and overseeing shows. We occupy a very unique space, not just because we're not trying to scale up, but we're also not really a, a consumer-facing company that we work for other companies. For the most part, we put on a handful of original shows, as you know. But for the most part, we help other people create things. And sometimes that's like, you know, we've worked on the Stair Perel's podcast since they started and, you know, it's a million downloads an episode down to some things which are, are equally breathtaking and interesting that may get 10,000 downloads an episode. And so our reputation is for being very exact and doing things that don't exist in the world. We're not afraid to like invent something new. Uh, what we tell people all the time is if you just want to have a couple of voices, you want to sit around the table and have a off the cuff conversation. There are so many talented producers who could do that for you. And that's not going to be interesting to us. And it's not really good use of us. So we tend to refer a lot of that work to other people. So we do the hard stuff. And it shows the shows that you guys create are listened to by millions of people. You win, you've won all kinds of awards. You get critical acclaim left and right. You mentioned earlier that there are certain people and just now you mentioned there are certain clients that are not the right fit for you. Who is a client that is, is kind of who you're looking for? Like what's the profile? So I'd say there's a company, we work with a lot of very large institutions like media companies, philanthropic organizations, major talent, because I think we know how to handle those things well from our experience with it. We have a, a show that's the CEO of Ford is our host. When he shows up, his name is Jim Farley, he's the CEO of Ford. He walks in the door, he's like excited to have these conversations. He's like, it's, it's, there's like a passion and drive there. It's odd because the show's called Drive, but he's, he's ready to go. And he's ready, like, this is a break for him. It's fun and he enjoys doing it. And he's ready to go. And he's just like 100% in that moment. You can't fake being interested in something or excited about something. And he brings that. And that's what I think makes that show work so well. So I think that, that the, the primary thing for us is what the profile is, is like somebody who's really excited to do this project. I think another thing about our clients, I have a vibe check that I use for myself. Where if I'm not excited to tell someone about what I'm working on, that's usually a sign that I should refer that project to somebody else. If we don't do interviews for episodes and I'm not wanting to tell everyone I know what I learned in that episode, it's somebody else's project, not ours. You know, not everything we do works. We would take something off our website because it didn't do as well as we wanted it to do, right? And even them, the problem was that the concept didn't quite work out the way that we expected it to. But when we started, there was every belief in this is, this is going to be a magical thing. 
And sometimes it is, and sometimes it's a little magical, and sometimes it isn't. But that's just the process. You have to be afraid of that. Defining your client's sound is a core value at Magnificent Noise. What does that mean? And, and how do you do it? One of the things we do at Magnificent Noise, we do it for almost every project we do, is we actually have a little exercise at the beginning where everyone who works on it, from us, the client, whole group of people, come up with personas of who we think that audience is. And we all present them to each other. And we talk about how they're the same or different. And we tend to walk out of that room picking just one who is, it's got to be right for this person. And we did the project with the Melinda Gates Foundation. We came up with a profile named her Hannah from Topeka. Was well, this this middle of America, slightly conservative, middle road voter, swing voter, little socially conservative, but Hannah felt the world should be more fair and should provide fairness to people. Like that was something that motivated and drove her. So when we had this, and every editorial meeting, we would talk about Hannah from Topeka. We would talk about like. What does she need to hear about our conversation on this topic that she's going to give a shit about? And the Gates Foundation, being such an interesting client and partner in this, actually got together a focus group of <laughs> people who fit that profile. And they played them excerpts of the show and asked them for feedback and asked them to stack rank, like which was their favorites. And all the production team, before we had the meeting where we heard the results... We all came up with our list of what would the Hannahs, we call them, what would the Hannahs think of these shows and how would they rate them from one to five? They listened to five excerpts. And uh, none of us got them right at all. We were completely wrong. And with even with all of our attention to Hannah, it ended up being that we had made some serious misjudgments about Hannah, but we learned about Hannah as a result of that process. And it affected everything from the way we chose the music to the pacing. The woman we hired to host the show, we hired a woman named Jen Hatmaker to host the show. We'd never heard of even before we started, but she's an influencer for Hannah's. So we spent a lot of time radically changing the sound of the show to make it appeal not to us, but to, to this audience. And that was, that's an example of how you have to find out what something sounds like. That translation of the Gates Foundation's work to Hannah sounds very different than who was explaining it to me. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. This has been an absolute pleasure and we'll have you back again soon. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Eric, for joining us on the show. Anybody who's interested in learning more or speaking with Eric can head to magnificentnoise.com or they can subscribe to Eric's free newsletter, The Audio Insurgent. For more podcast-related news, info, and takes, you can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Umbro. Podcast Perspectives is a production of The Podglomerate. If you are looking for help producing, distributing, or monetizing your podcast, you can find us at thepodglomerate.com. Shoot us an email at listen at thepodglomerate.com or follow us on all social platforms at Podglomerate. This episode was produced by Chris Boniello and Henry Lavoie. And thank you to our marketing team, Joni Deutsch, Madison Richards, Morgan Swift, Annabella Panna, and Vanessa Ullman. And a special thank you to Dan Christo. Thanks for listening, and I will catch you next week.